From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, May 9th. I'm Marco Werman. Today, what it takes to infiltrate a terrorist organization. Intelligence, patience, cunning, sometimes rat-like cunning. It is a dirty, dangerous, difficult game, and people die at it. We'll have the latest on the new underwear bombing plot foiled by the CIA. And later, an immigrant janitor who took more than a decade to earn his degree from Columbia. I was working all the time, full-time, and I was just a part-time student. Our eyes, the world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It has all the elements of a Hollywood blockbuster, a terrorist plot to bring down a U.S.-bound plane, a bomb allegedly undetectable to airport security, and then a double agent saves the day by volunteering for the job of suicide bomber and betraying the plot. But this is no movie script. It really did happen, according to U.S. and foreign officials. The agent in question was reportedly deployed by Saudi intelligence to penetrate al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Brian Bennett is covering the story for the Los Angeles Times from their Washington bureau. Brian, what was the plot precisely? Well, the plot was a attempt to smuggle a bomb inside a bomber's underwear onto a U.S.-bound aircraft um, and the bomb was designed in such a way that it didn't use any metal parts so it would pass through undetected was, was the idea. And Saudi intelligence was able to infiltrate the bomb-making cell and uh, have an informer volunteer for the mission through a chain of custody, get hold of the bomb, and then smuggle the bomb out of the country and hand it off through the intelligence agencies to the CIA and, and the FBI where it's currently being analyzed. Now, the device itself has been described as a pair of men's briefs. Do you have a clear understanding of kind of the size and, you know, how this actually worked? Well, essentially, it's a, a piece of plastic explosives that are um, hidden at the bottom of a pair of underpants uh, with a detonation device. And the difficulty in designing something like this is that it's difficult to get the heat and pressure you need to activate an explosive uh, without using metal parts. And um, we don't know the exact details of how this was designed, but it was designed in such a way, possibly using a plastic syringe that, that pushed a chemical explosive uh, into a detonating charge. But it was designed in such a way that it didn't require metal parts and was much more difficult to detect. So uh, the, the key ingredient is this stuff called PETN. That would have been kind of like somewhere, as you say, in the bottom, basically in the crotch of the underwear? Yeah, that's right. So the PETN um, was was placed, uh, padded in, in the crotch of the underwear, so it would be um, difficult, even during a pat-down, it would be difficult for, for someone to uh, decide whether that was uh, someone's crotch or, or was a piece of explosive. How much PETN do you need to bring down a plane, and is a volume that you would fit into a pair of underwear enough? Well, after speaking with explosive experts, for this small amount of explosives, it would be about the amount of explosives that could fit into a coffee cup. The explosives would have to be close to the 
edge of the plane for it to actually blow a hole in the fuselage is what, what I've been told. Now, the star, I guess you could say, uh, of this story was the Saudi double agent. How long had he been undercover? We don't really know exactly how long he'd been undercover. Uh, we know that he had been in place at least for several weeks uh, when he got custody of the bomb and took it out of Yemen. But before that, we don't know. And these types of operations obviously take a lot of time to build up. They take time to build the trust of the network that you're trying to infiltrate. So you know, you can assume that it took several years to try to build up the network and the linkages uh, in order to infiltrate al-Qaeda in, in the Arabian Peninsula. So just to clarify, I mean, this was a Saudi agent, and while the CIA was monitoring activities there, I mean, how much did they really know about what was going on? My understanding is that the CIA and the Saudis worked on this case very closely, that it was a Saudi intelligence operation, uh, but that the CIA is very closely intertwined with the Saudi intelligence agencies and was a part of this operation. Brian Bennett of the Los Angeles Times speaking with us from Washington. The bomb in this case is allegedly the handiwork of a 30-year-old Saudi man, Ibrahim Hassan al-Asiri. He's known to be ruthless, once having used his own brother in a suicide attack. Bruce Rydell grudgingly calls him a genius. Rydell served 30 years with the CIA and is now a senior foreign policy fellow at the Brookings Institution. I can't think of a target more important than al-Asiri. He has now demonstrated the capacity to build bombs that have penetrated airport security twice. First, he built the so-called underwear bomb that was used by Omar Farouk Abdul Muttalib on Christmas Day 2009. Mm -hmm. That bomb had gone through several security checks at several different airports. Then a year later, he built the bombs that were hidden in computer toner cartridges. Those bombs also successfully penetrated airport security at a number of places. We were only able to foil that plot because Saudi intelligence gave us the routing numbers of the two parcels we were looking for. So Assyria is seemingly determined to succeed uh, some kind of attack inside the United States. But how many capable bombers has Assyria trained to build the same kind of bomb and work without him? That's a very good question. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has said publicly uh, that they have a workshop and that they have recruited now sufficient number of people that if Assyri was to be killed in a drone strike, for example, uh, his legacy will live on, that he's, he's created a cadre of bomb-making experts. Now, we don't know that for sure, but there's no reason to believe that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is misleading us about that. What kind of effects does something like this have on the infiltrated organization? Is it increased paranoia and dissent? Well, one of the things you always try to do is terrorize the terrorists. Uh, the drones help to do that, but also the knowledge that there are penetrations of their own organization uh, can be very helpful. It can lead to a whole case of suspicions being cast on everyone. That can lead to a purge of the organization, and it can explode from within. Now, the agent who uh, apprehended the bomb and Assyri, the bomb maker, are both Saudis. Uh, so this incident must speak volumes to you about the current level of intelligence cooperation between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. We have a very close, long-standing collaboration between the United States and Saudi Arabia. President Obama's top counterterrorism official, John Brennan, has served in Saudi Arabia twice in his career uh, and knows them well. They know him well. There's a strong degree of trust between our service and their service. 
And how strong is that trust today? Because a lot of information about this case has leaked out. I can't imagine the Saudis are very pleased about that. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some harsh words in private between Saudis and Americans over all of this coming out into the newspapers. But the Saudis know America well. They've been dealing with us for a long time, and they know our strengths and our weaknesses, and they know that one of the downsides of dealing with America is that we have a problem keeping secrets. We're not a closed society like Saudi Arabia. We're an open one. Mm. I think in the long term, while they may be irritated about this, it probably doesn't hurt U.S.-Saudi relations if Americans know that Saudis have now twice thwarted plots to attack America. The identity of the double agent has not been revealed, but is it safe to assume that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula knows who he is? I don't think there's any question that the al-Qaeda knows uh, they've been compromised and they know who the penetration has been. In addition to helping to foil the plot, the information this asset provided probably led to the successful drone strike last Sunday that killed the head of operations of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But I think the dangerous thing to bear in mind is that while we've had a success this week, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is growing very rapidly in Yemen. Uh, Yemen is a state that's broken apart and a failed state. And the consequence of its failure, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is now rapidly taking over parts of the southern half of the country. Bruce Rydell, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Gregory Johnson is a Near East Studies scholar at Princeton University, and he's been following the story closely. Uh, Bruce Rydell talked about the drone attacks as being a U.S. effort to terrorize the terrorists. How does that play out in Yemen? Right. That's a really good question. And it's something that if we sort of take a, a broader view of what's happening in Yemen and we go back to Christmas Day 2009, this is the day that the so-called underwear bomber attempted to bring down the airliner over Detroit. Mm. At that point in time, AQAP had about two to 300 members uh, within Yemen and it controlled no territory. AQAP, now, today, that's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, that's that's correct. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, today, two and a half years later, the group has more than tripled in strength up to over a thousand members. And now it controls towns. It runs police departments. It runs a court system and so forth within southern Yemen. And so there there are, I believe, uh, two major causes for this sort of rapid, rapid growth of the organization for how much stronger it's grown in just two and a half years. One is that these U.S. drone strikes, which have killed a number of individuals within al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but there have also been some mistakes and they've killed a number of women and children. And AQAP has used this as sort of recruiting posters to, to gain more members. Also, of course, the Yemeni military has really fractured and fragmented during the uprisings of last year, and AQAP has moved in. So included in those numbers you cite, Gregory, are Yemenis, foreign fighters? Who are they? They're both. So we see more Yemenis joining the organization, but now we see Yemen, much like Pakistan used to be in the days after September 11, 2001, and sort of a, a magnet for everybody who wanted to participate in a jihad against the U.S. Now we see Yemen becoming that magnet. So how much of a safe haven has Yemen become for these extremists? Is it the new Afghanistan? Well, the new Afghanistan might be a bit much, but certainly 
AQAP itself sees itself as as basically a functioning government in in parts of Yemen. This is unlike, say, Christmas Day 2009 to go back to sort of that time peg Mm. when AQAP was operating in the shadows, hiding out in mountains and caves. Now what they're doing is they're operating openly. They're walking around the streets. And in fact, they're the power and control. So back to the idea of terrorizing the terrorists. I mean, if if we can assume, generally speaking, that's the U.S. strategy in Yemen at the moment, uh, what is the blowback from that? I mean, isn't terrorizing the terrorists precisely what helps fuel uh, the numbers in al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? Yeah, that's certainly one of the one of the main blowbacks and one of the main concerns is that these drone strikes, when they're good, they're very good. And so they can remove individuals from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The strike against Fahad al-Qusa over the weekend, a, a major figure within AQAP, this is an example of that. But there are also times such as in December 2009 when a U.S. missile strike plowed into uh, a Bedouin encampment and killed more than 40 women and children. And so it's really a mixed bag with the drone strikes. When they go bad, they go very bad, and AQAP quickly takes advantage of this. Gregory, what have you learned about Yemen through this episode, through this bomb plot, that you feel hasn't gotten much attention? Well, I think one of the things is that a, AQAP is, is much stronger than it was the last time we really focused on it in 2009. The group's more than tripled in strength, as I mentioned, and it controls a lot of territory. But we shouldn't be surprised that AQAP is attempting to carry out attacks against the West. The, the group has a great deal of resolve, and in fact, its resolve has remained fairly steady over the past several years. What we see changing is the talent of the organization, how much it adapts. So now from the attempt on Christmas Day 2009 to today, by all reports, the bomb is sort of a generation evolved from what we what we saw. So when AQAP fails, they go to school on that failure and they come back stronger and with, with better bombs. Thankfully, this time, Saudi intelligence uh, was on top of it. Gregory Johnson, Near East Studies Scholar at Princeton. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Later in the program, we hear more about the CIA's years-long effort to successfully infiltrate al-Qaeda. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This month, an American company plans to start a long and difficult salvage project along the coast of Italy. The project is the removal of the capsized cruise ship Costa Concordia. It ran aground on Giglio Island off the coast of Tuscany in January. 32 passengers were killed. Italian authorities are still investigating the accident and the ship's captain who is accused of causing it. But island residents can't wait for the massive hulk to be gone, as Megan Williams reports. So, we are visiting now Giglio Island. Giglio Island is one of seven islands in the Tuscan archipelago. A local tour guide talks to a group of journalists in a minivan as the vehicle climbs the main road of Giglio Island. On these hills is also honey. 
that is produced uh, because you can see right now that there are lots of flowers. The tour is part of a plan to promote all the positives Giulio has to offer. And more to the point, to counteract what most of the world now associates with the small Mediterranean island. That glaring gash in the sea down below, formed by the capsized Costa Concordia. Four months after it came to rest on the rocks here, the crippled vessel is still there, just outside the port. It's a sight Mayor Sergio Tilli is determined to overcome. At a small press conference organized in the only island village where you can't see the wreck, Artilli talks about the need to counteract press coverage that has equated Giglio not with its main industry, tourism, but with disaster. What he's really talking about is the fact that tourist bookings this year are way down. Well, the mayor concedes it's tough to tell whether this is a result of the economic recession in Italy or the wreck. One thing is for sure. For the islanders, the ship can't be removed soon enough. So it came as good news that the American company Titan Salvage will team with Italian contractor Micoperi to tow away the ship in one piece. The two companies will work together to tug the 114,000-ton ship upright onto an underwater platform where they'll repair the gash. They'll then attach two air-filled flotation devices to keep it buoyant as they tow it to a nearby port. The year-long $300 million removal project is set to start this month. Merotili says the plans correspond perfectly with the community's wishes. It respects the environment, it won't interfere with tourism, and it will keep the ship whole, thus avoiding letting out any contaminated liquids inside. It's those contaminated liquids inside the ship that are most worrisome. While 2,400 tons of fuel oil were removed from the ship's tanks with no sign of contamination earlier this month, tons of other toxic materials are still inside. Marcello Mossavere is the head of Tuscany's Environmental Protection Agency. He says the risk now is that the plastic and metal containers that hold liquids like the five tons of cooking oil on board could begin to degrade in the corrosive seawater. If they can remove the ship quickly, and by quickly I mean months, a year at the most, then the containers can hold, but they can't hold indefinitely. We've analyzed the plastics and know that if the ship stays there longer, it will be a problem. A problem both for the sea around the ship, which teems with dolphins, fish and coral life, and for the local inhabitants, who want to put the tragedy behind them and see their island once again associated with pleasure and relaxation, not tragedy. For The World, I'm Megan Williams on Giglio Island, Tuscany. In many ways, our next story is like that of many immigrants here in the U.S. Gats Filipai left his home in the former Yugoslavia in 1992. He settled in the Bronx and started taking English classes. After a while, Filipai landed a job as a janitor at Columbia University. That's where the story changes a bit. Taking advantage of the tuition benefits for employees, Filipai enrolled in Columbia's School of Continuing Education and then its School of General Studies, focusing on the classics. 
Now Gats Filippi, who is 52, will earn his bachelor's degree from Columbia on Sunday. And Mr. Filippi, uh, I know you're in the middle of a 16-hour shift right now, so thank you for taking a few minutes of your day to speak with us. How long has it taken you studying part-time while working to earn this degree? It took me 12 years. 12 years. But prior to that, occasionally, I was taking English classes for foreigners. And you were working the whole time? Yes, I was working full-time, and I was just a part-time student. That's a tough schedule. Tell me about your story. Where did you live in the former Yugoslavia before you left? I lived in Montenegro. I am uh, from uh, countryside, ethnically. I am Albanian. I uh, registered 1978 at the law school in Belgrade as a part-time student. And uh, I was working and helping my family in a family farm. And when the troubles, political troubles, started in Yugoslavia, then I find a way how to come to to the territories of Uncle Sam. And I'm lucky and happy for that. And I moved to the United States in uh, 1992. And then how did you end up at Columbia? I took English classes in a high school in the Bronx. And one of my English teachers, after I asked which is the best university in New York, told me it is Columbia University. Mm. So I said, I'm going to try to find a job and to work for Columbia. And he said, yeah, you may even take classes over there. He said, you may even get the chance maybe to go to college. And now today I'm done. I'm finished. Yeah, Uh, it must feel great. Yeah. What was your favorite class? My favorite class was supervised research in Latin literature, studying Seneca's letters. Interesting. Gats, did your fellow students in Columbia know that you also worked as a janitor at Columbia? Some of them did not know, and when uh, they come to the building where I work, I've seen a couple of times that when they saw me the first time, uh, they were surprised a little bit. You know, like reaction, oh, this guy is in my class, but he, you know, he cleans. He's a cleaner. I mean, you'll be officially graduating next week, but you're still working full-time as a janitor at Columbia. I mean, given the economy right now, I I suppose you don't want to give a job up like that. I have to make my living, and I cannot quit my job yet. So I work, and I'll be working until I find something better, hopefully. You know, if you think of your own travels from Montenegro to the United States and then your studies and your work at Columbia, it it kind of sounds like an odyssey, you could say. Is there a piece of literature in in your studies of the classics that you kind of relate to? I don't know about that, but I do love the Iliad more than Odyssey. And why do you like the Iliad more than the Odyssey? I think tragic endings draw me more than the happy ones. Odyssey survived, Achilles died, so I just admire more people who, being heroes, sacrifice everything, even the life. It sounds like a very Balkan spirit. Am I being too presumptuous? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Gats Filippi will be graduating from Columbia University this Sunday. Gats, congratulations again. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, why the latest underwear bombing case is a huge breakthrough for the U.S. The CIA has been trying to get 
an agent into the inner circle of Al-Qaeda for many, many years. And this is the first operation that I know of where they got somebody in so deep that he was to be the perpetrator of the plot. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The FBI is examining the underwear bomb at the center of the latest foiled al-Qaeda plot to bomb a U.S. airliner. FBI Director Robert Mueller told a congressional committee about the plot today. According to reports, the plan was for a suicide bomber to board a plane wearing a new kind of non-detectable explosive device in his briefs. But the plot wasn't carried out because the designated bomber was reportedly a double agent working for Saudi intelligence and the CIA. Tim Weiner is the author of Enemies, A History of the FBI, and Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. And Tim, you've followed the CIA for years. Have you ever seen a case like this? Well, the CIA has been trying to get an agent into the inner circle of al-Qaeda and its affiliates for many, many years. 15 years, to be precise. And this is the first operation that I know of where they got somebody in so deep that he was to be the perpetrator of the plot. And why did it take 15 years if this is the first time? Well, first of all, the agent in question works for the Saudi intelligence service. So not only does he look like he comes from that part of the world, Yemen is just to the south of Saudi Arabia, but he speaks as a native in the dialects of Arabic that are spoken in that part of the world. And the number of CIA officers who both look and speak that way is vanishingly small. Mm. So this is a Saudi operation that was conceived at CIA. Do you have any insight into this agent's background? Is he a former al-Qaeda agent? Oh, no. He's not a double agent. He works for the Saudi intelligence service. He's probably young. Uh, He probably has family roots in either Yemen or one of the provinces of Saudi Arabia close to Yemen so that he can speak as a Yemeni or as a Saudi. And this operation has probably been in the works for two or three or more years. Mm. But Saudi Arabia does have a rehabilitation program for former uh, militants, extremists. I mean, wouldn't that have been a pool of, of possible agents? Be extremely dangerous to turn somebody like that back. Mm. Possible, but... Uh, not worth the risk. How do you go about recruiting an agent like this? You come up to the agent, whether you're in the Saudi service or the CIA, and you say, son, how do you like to do something marvelous for your country? Because let's not forget that Saudi Arabia is a principal target of al-Qaeda, which believes that it is a corrupt ally of the United States and deserves to be punished for that. And the young officer says, yes, sir. And then we begin training to be a man who infiltrates a terrorist circle is a long game. So this man was already inside Saudi intelligence uh, when he was recruited? Yes, he was a Saudi intelligence officer. He went deep, deep undercover, surfaced in Yemen, and joined up with the crowd that is known as al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, based in Yemen. 
extremely dangerous crowd, probably the most powerful operational affiliate of al-Qaeda today. And his information not only made him the man who was supposed to carry out the plot and actually wear uh, the improvised explosive device under his pants, but he also gave information that targeted Fad Kuso, who was killed by a drone strike about 72 hours ago, uh, who was one of the guys who helped blow up the USS Cole in mm. uh, the main harbor of Yemen back in December 2000. It's a long, long game. Intelligence operations can take decades. What kind of personality goes in for this kind of espionage? I mean, it's got to be a rare person who can play both sides convincingly. Yes. Intelligence requires uh, patience, cunning, uh, sometimes rat-like cunning, an ability to lie successfully, and the ability to pretend to be someone you are not. Uh, it is a dirty, dangerous, difficult game, and people die at it. You know, since 9-11, we've heard repeated calls for the United States to improve human intelligence, you know, the old-fashioned spycraft as opposed to surveillance. Is this episode a sign of more robust human intelligence, do you think? You bet it is, Marco. But remember, this is a global game. And without the Saudi intelligence service, the CIA could not have pulled this operation off. Here's the, here's the problem. Al-Qaeda has been plotting since 1995 for spectacular attacks on airliners, including a plot uh, that was uh, based uh, in Manila in 1995 to bring down 12 at once mm. over the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, killing three to 4,000 people. This is why you can't carry liquids of more than three ounces onto an airplane anymore, because that was the original tactic. Mm. Now their chief bomb maker, who is in Yemen, named Ibrahim Asiri, who better be living in a bunker right now because the drone is headed for his head imminently, uh, has been working with uh, more sophisticated techniques, uh, including uh, inkjet cartridges to be used as bombs, and now has apparently found a way to weave explosives into the fabric of your undergarments rather than uh, carrying around a bulky uh, chunk of plastique in your pants. Right. And that would be very hard to detect. So now that these plans have been damaged by a mole, how do you imagine al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula reacting? I mean, does something like this damage a terrorist organization? Yeah, they better duck because there will be uh, drone missiles uh, headed their way shortly. This guy brought out, obviously, precise targeting details that enabled a drone strike to kill Fad Kuso, and uh, he knows where they live. This is what intelligence is. Know your enemy. The only way to know your enemy is to talk to him and to sit in his camp and drink tea with him and find out what he's thinking and planning. That's a good intelligence operation. We have heard already today, though, that uh, numbers of extremists in Yemen have increased uh, triple fold. So won't there be just other bombers around uh, who have learned from Assyri and ready to strike again? Marco, there have been bombers that have been targeting the United States since World War I. And there will always be bombers targeting the United States. Every time we build a stronger shield, they're going to try and build a sharper sword. This is the history of warfare and intelligence. And, you know, the CIA and the FBI have to get lucky every day. And uh, the bad guys have to get lucky once. Tim Weiner, the author of Enemies, A History of the FBI, also author of Legacy of Ashes, A History of the CIA. He joined us from New York City. Tim, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Marco. Just a day after International Envoy Kofi Annan warned that Syria could slide into civil war 
there was more trouble in the country. Syrian rebels reportedly killed seven pro-government militiamen in a Damascus suburb. And the head of the United Nations Military Observer Mission got an up-close taste of the violence when a bomb exploded near his convoy. The world's Laura Lynch reports from Damascus. Major General Robert Mood was in a convoy of observers and journalists heading for Dara, the city where the uprising began. Just after the U.N. vehicles passed, a roadside bomb hit a Syrian army vehicle escorting the mission. Eight soldiers were hurt. Mood used the attack to make a point. This is exactly the graphic example of the kind of violence that is challenging the life of the Syrian population every day in many cities around the country. This is what the Syrian people is living through on a daily basis in many places. Mood was careful not to speculate about who was behind the bombing or who the target was. And so far, there's been no formal claim of responsibility. But the opposition's Syrian National Council is blaming the government, saying the explosion is part of a campaign to drive the UN monitors out of the country. In Damascus, Foreign Ministry spokesman Jihad Makdisi brushed aside the claim, blaming the rebels. Clearly, there are uh, some element. It's not in their interest to have a successful mission for Mr. Anand. They don't believe in cessation of violence. Eventually, they don't believe in reaching a political solution for the crisis. This is the main message. Why would they bomb a convoy for a UN observer? The accusations, the continuing clashes leave little room for building trust, much less a sustainable ceasefire. The man charged with designing the peace plan, Kofi Annan, gave members of the UN Security Council a private briefing yesterday. It was said to be bleak, and perhaps it inspired Major General Mood to issue a plea to halt any further escalation of the conflict. Anyone inside the country or outside the country that is considering that the option of more weapons, more explosives, more violence is a good one, my message is very clear. It is not a good one. It is the one we should not choose, and we still have a choice. That may well be aimed at those smuggling arms to opposition forces that have yet to lay down their weapons. But Anan also had harsh words for the Syrian government, saying torture, mass arrests and other human rights violations appear to be intensifying. America's ambassador to the UN, Susan Rice, went further, saying the regime isn't doing nearly enough to stick to the peace plan. McDesey quickly dismissed the criticism. This is not true. She should be assessing through the eyes of the UN observers who, yes, just yesterday said thank you to Syria for facilitating our task and for cooperating. To whom I should be listening more, to Susan Rice, who has a politically clear agenda against Syria, or I should, I should respond and listen to General Mood, who's on the ground and assessing in his own eyes what's going on in Syria. Whatever Mood is seeing for himself... In some parts of the country, there simply isn't any ceasefire at all, not helped by the fact that there are still too few UN monitors to reach all the hotspots. Shooting and shelling continues day and night. And every day, Syrians on both sides of the divide are dying. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Damascus. You can find more of Laura's reporting from Syria, including her slideshow from the battered city of Homs. That's at theworld.org. 
The Netherlands has long been considered one of the core Eurozone countries. The local economies generally have been strong, and the Dutch were among the first to tell southern European nations to get their financial houses in order. That's why many Europeans were so surprised recently when the Dutch government fell over its own economic problems. Journalists trooped off to Holland searching for evidence of a new economic reality there. Among them, the world's Clark Boyd. There's a temptation to make every story as dramatic as possible. Otherwise, the thinking goes, you won't keep listening. And so that's why this place, Basis Bar in Amsterdam, has been appearing in international news reports recently. The Dutch economy, the story runs, is going to the dogs. And here at Basis, the shtick seems tailor-made for the story. The staff serves the drinks, and you bring your own food. We provide all the necessities that you need for uh, eating here. So we have plates, cutlery, uh, microwave oven, and uh, we even do the dishes for you if you ask us nicely. That's Jan Schaberg, co-owner of Basis Bar. Of course, ask a few more questions and you learn that the bring-your-own-food idea had nothing to do with any financial crisis. Schaberg says he and his partner just wanted to make the place feel more like a living room and less like a bar. But four months in, Schaberg admits the opportunity to save a euro or two is now a selling point. If you want to go out to have uh, dinner with, uh, in a restaurant or anything, then, I mean, in Amsterdam, you're, uh, it goes really quickly up to 30, 40 euros per person. And with us, uh, you pay for your drinks, and if you get a pizza at the supermarket, it costs you 4 euros. Uh, so, yeah, the financial factor is bigger than we thought it would be. But, Schaberg tells me, the bar doesn't plan to use the financial factor as a marketing ploy. As Skaberg microwaves a pizza for a customer, I ask him whether things are particularly tough for the younger crowd that seems to frequent the bar. Only a little bit, he tells me. Nothing like the stories he hears from young Spaniards or young Greeks or Italians who come into the bar. Everyone is still going out, he says. They're still buying things. While I'm at Basis Bar, I meet with Denise Dulcich. She's been profiled by some foreign media outlets as a young Dutch person struggling to get by. One story, she says, portrayed her as someone who lost her job in the crisis and is now forced to cook meals for the elderly. Not true, she says. Her contract as a childcare worker ran out two years ago, and she decided to start her own catering business. She admits it's been tough, especially when she went to the bank for a loan. I'm not going to get anything from the bank. And I say, <laughs> they really had to laugh. They say, oh, please, you know, it's restaurant-related. No. Because all these restaurants and bars, you know, they can't survive at this moment. So why you, you know? Despite that setback, Dulcich remains relatively optimistic about her prospects, but she is kind of down on where her country is heading. With the recent deadlock over budget negotiations and a caretaker government in place until new elections can be held in September, she's very negative about the country's politicians. Because, you know, they say a lot, they promise a lot, you know, and what happens? Nothing. At least I found one story I expected to hear in a bar. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Amsterdam. Chinese rights activist Chen Guangcheng plays a starring role in today's GeoQuiz. The 
blind Chinese dissident made headlines last week when he fled to the U.S. Embassy. He's now in a Beijing hospital. Authorities in China say Chen can apply to leave the country, but how or when that might happen is still up in the air. Chen says he's worried about possible retaliation against his relatives who remain at home. So where is Chen from? Chen escaped from house arrest in a village about five hours south of Beijing in a coastal Chinese province. This province is where the 3,000-mile-long Yellow River comes to an end and empties into the Bohai Sea. It's also the birthplace of Confucius. He taught that deep thought and study are key to solving great problems. We've got a quicker strategy. We'll reveal the name of this Chinese province in just a minute. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS and Masterpiece, presenting the new season of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as crime fighting's favorite team. The game is on Sunday, May 13th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We'll hear more in a moment about the fate of the blind Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng. But first, we owe you an answer to the geo-quiz. Chen fled his village in the Chinese province of Shandong. So Shandong is the answer we're looking for. It's been a week since Chen left the U.S. Embassy in Beijing after his daring escape from house arrest. He checked into a Beijing hospital for treatment for a broken foot. Chen hoped it'd be just a matter of days before he'd board a plane for the United States. Today, Chen still lies in a hospital bed. When the BBC asked him this week if he thought he'd be permitted to leave China soon, he seemed upbeat. I think I I can, because people from the central government came to visit me, and they have made it clear that uh, they should protect my rights. As a citizen, Chen clearly thinks like a lawyer. I keep telling people that he's not a lawyer. That's Jerome Cohen. He's Chen's closest confidant outside of China. He's also a professor at New York University's School of Law. Cohen says Chen never had the opportunity to pursue legal studies. Indeed, I was told no blind man has ever finished a Chinese law school. Uh, Chen is not a licensed lawyer, but Chen has become a self-taught advocate. These days, Cohen is staying up until the wee hours for long telephone chats with his old friend. He's made arrangements for Chen to study law at NYU. It's an idea the two have been talking about since they first met in 2003 when Chen visited the U.S. as part of a State Department program. Later that year, they met again in Beijing and went on a shopping trip. I bought him $100 worth of how-to-do-it law books Uh, which he took home, and by the time my wife and I visited his village the following month, it was obvious those books had been uh, well-fingered. His wife and his older brother had been reading these materials to him, and Chun and his brother had put them to use. The brother himself would go to court, even though he was a a farmer who'd never been to college. He was an intelligent person and could read well. And the, they were really forming a kind of a barefoot family law firm. Chen started to represent people in the countryside. People who were deaf 
blind, crippled, uh, and who couldn't get real lawyers to represent him. His whole county only had four lawyers, and none of them was interested uh, in helping uh, these disabled people. Jerome Cohen says he's deeply impressed with Chen and his grasp of the law. He was a quietly charismatic, highly intelligent, very determined, quite articulate person. I thought he and his wife were a great pair, and I got the feeling someday this man could become the Chinese equivalent of a Gandhi. Gandhi or not, Chen's fame continues to spread. The woman who drove Chen to Beijing after his escape likened it to the jailbreak in the movie The Shawshank Redemption. The woman wound up being interrogated in a hotel room by Chinese security guards. And in a strange overlap of fact and fiction, the woman says she and the interrogators watched the Tim Robbins movie on the hotel room TV. But don't try to find any of this on Chinese microblogs. The search term Shawshank Redemption, as well as the movie title The Great Escape, are now blocked on Chinese social media. Ri Sung-un is North Korea's most famous punk rock star. Wait a minute, did I just imply there's punk rock inside North Korea? Yes, I did, and there is. According to some concert posters, anyway, in Seoul, in South Korea. Those posters recently advertised a series of shows featuring the legendary Ri, but reporter Jason Struther wasn't so sure about it. It turns out the legend of North Korean punk rock star Ri Sung-un is too good to be true. But if he did actually exist, his music might sound something like this. Ri is the creation of 10 South Korean bands that told his fictitious life story through a series of rock concerts and performance art pieces. Coming up with the details of the legend wasn't so easy, says Odu Ham bass player for the Ang Daungs. We were all drinking one night and we asked each other what would punk rock in North Korea be like? All we knew through the media about the North are their politics, but we didn't know anything about how ordinary people live, what they do for fun, what kind of music they listen to. To help fill in the blanks and give their rock star Ri a credible backstory, Oh and other musicians reached out to some North Korean refugees. Yu Ji-won is a vocalist and keyboardist for the Alligators. He says he wanted to get the scoop on some aspects of North Korean life that you don't hear much about. I wanted to know how North Koreans lose their virginity. One defector told me that when they're teenagers, boys and girls have to go on guard duty at night together, and couples sneak off into the tall grass. I thought it was really romantic. You says that became inspiration for the song I Fell in Love While on Guard Duty. But legendary punk rocker Ri Sung-un is also revealed as a tragic figure in one of the concerts. In this song, we hear that Ri is executed for running a pirate radio station. The North Korean soldiers don't have any bullets, so they beat him to death with their guns. Something like that might not be too far from the truth, 
Pyongyang officially bans foreign music, and those caught with South Korean media are said to be sent off to labor camps. Despite that, the North Korean black market is filled with smuggled-in DVDs and CDs, and that might soon include recordings of the Ri Sung-un concerts. Bass player Odu Ham says he doesn't know if North Koreans would be so impressed with South Korean punk rock because, from what he understands, they already have their own. When I tried explaining to a North Korean what punk rock is, I described it as music that goes really fast and you screech while singing. He told me that back home after they drink, they sometimes pick up guitars and play fast while screaming the lyrics. The defector asked me, isn't that punk rock? Oh says he's holding out hope that a real Ri Sung-un might be out there. For The World, I'm Jason Struther, Seoul. That'll do it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're online at theworld.org, and I'm on Twitter, at Marco Werman. We'll catch you tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Online at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.